you've focused on really the what I call the four kind of pillars of, of governance. One, you know, is um, you've got to set the strategy. Um, you've got to resource the strategy in terms of um, appointing a leader for the business, so having a great CEO, um, and you've got to be able to resource the strategy. Uh, you've got to be able to monitor the performance of the organisation. Are we delivering what we say we want to achieve? Uh, and then there is um, the conformance or the risk aspects uh, in terms of actually understanding and um, managing through um, challenging times uh, where the business might be facing um, different risks. So so you, you are in a different role. And so you've got to step out of those day-to-day -day responsibilities. Helping CEOs and business leaders discover the energy to perform exceptional brilliance and positively impact the lives of those around them. Be inspired by world leaders, game-changing influencers, and next-level gurus. This is the Active CEO Podcast, where the ordinary don't belong. And now your host, CEO and founder of Energy to Perform, international speaker and leadership performance coach, Craig Johns. On this episode of the Sports People Recruitment Active CEO Podcast, we speak with an awarded sports professional who has 25 years of experience in a variety of leadership and governance roles within the sport, finance, food, education and not-for-profit sectors in New Zealand, Australia and London. She has completed a Bachelor of Commerce and a Bachelor of Physical Education from the Otago University and also done leadership and executive studies at the London Business School and New Zealand Institute of Directors. Her career commenced at the Bank of New Zealand and included numerous executive roles, such as Head of Marketing and Distribution. She moved to London as a Strategic Marketing Manager for GE Capital before spending a decade advising CEOs and boards through her business, Paul & Associates. Between 2009 and 2016, she successfully led Hockey New Zealand and Netball New Zealand as their Chief Executive. Since 2006, she has been giving back in numerous governance and chair roles at Pro-Life Foods, Dyson School for Girls, Just Life Group, Martin Jenkins, The Clubhouse New Zealand, Sport New Zealand, and is the Deputy Chair of High Performance Sport New Zealand. I'm honoured and privileged to introduce you to a leader who thrives on a changing environment, loves being active with yoga, skiing, tennis, stand-up paddleboarding and golf, and can be found pottering around the garden, Hilary Paul. Hilary, welcome to the show. Good afternoon. Thanks, Craig. Yeah, look, it's great to have you on the podcast. and. Uh, I've watched you from afar doing some amazing things in New Zealand sport over the last couple of decades. So uh, I look forward to delving into those throughout today's uh, episode. You grew up in New Zealand. You know, what did a typical Kiwi summer look like for you as a child? I was really fortunate. I actually grew up rurally in South Auckland and um, one of five kids. Uh, and uh, a lot of time was spent on that farm, be it Ealing, um, building huts, and of course we rode our ponies. So, um, you know, I can still smell, smell um, that freshly cut hay and riding my beloved ponies over jumps we used to make with the hay bales and then taking them down to the Cleveland River for a swim in the river. 
so yeah just a, quite quite a quintessential um childhood for me yeah so a lot of sport and a lot of outdoor activities did you have any dreams or aspirations to play for your country in any sport uh, look, um, I like to think of myself as a um, jack of all trades and a master of none. So high participation rate, um, not a high performance rate. I, I did play hockey through school um, to secondary school rep level and, and at university. But look, to be honest, um, a bit of a journeyman. Uh, and look, had a mother who was fantastic at, at her sports, both um, tennis and hockey, and, and, and she, she gained um, higher honours than me, that's for sure. Yeah, brilliant. So who was your greatest teacher, you know, whether in or out of school, uh, that had a major influence on who you are today? Yeah, that, that's a really, really interesting question. Um, I actually do go back to my mother, who was a phys ed teacher, and uh, but she had a phenomenal work ethic and, and work rate. And uh, both her and my father were great believers in education and made huge sacrifices. So the five of us had um, the best quality education. Um, if I go into my professional work life, um, I guess my boss back at um, Bank of New Zealand, Teresa Gatting, who you know is a leading New Zealand businesswoman, um, she she just had this incredible ability to bring um, teams of really capable people together. Uh, and then, you know, create a great environment to get the best out of those teams and those people. Um, and then um, I'm sure we'll talk more about it, but uh, I, I've been really fortunate to have fa fantastic chairs of the boards that I've been on or when I've been a CEO. Uh, and I've always learnt heaps from them. Yeah, so it sounds like, you know, that especially the one there at Bank of New Zealand. So was it around a diversity of different people inside those teams or was it just pure talent they're looking at? Uh, mainly around talent, I think, and around um, ability to work collaboratively. So you really play to each other's strengths. Um, but yeah, I guess a diversity of skills and, and experiences. Um, well, again, I guess, um, you know, my mother, Mary, was a, was a bit of a trailblazer and she had studied phys ed and was a phys ed teacher. And um, through school, you know, I loved my sport and I was sports captain, but I was also quite academic. I really enjoyed studying economics in particular at secondary school, um, and, uh, but was delighted to get into phys ed um, school at Otago starting in 1982. And at that stage, it was a four-year degree. But after my first year, I realised I, I didn't want to be a phys ed teacher. And in those days, the sport and recreation industry hadn't really developed and um, in terms of actually building professional careers in sports management. And, and New Zealand it really hadn't begun. You know, I think back, I sat next to Richie Guy once actually at a, at a sport and rec awards dinner and it astounded me that, you know, during the 80s, um, you know, New Zealand rugby had one uh, paid employee and uh, it was certainly before Hockey New Zealand had any paid executives. So I stuck with my phys ed because I loved it. Uh, but um, then I decided to add a um, commerce degree, um, majoring in marketing and, and economics. And I think I was the first phys editor to do a double degree with commerce. And I had to, um, you know, 
paved the way really with the registry to enable my commerce credits to um, to be able to cross credit between the two degrees. In those days, it was pretty common for for Zers to do arts or science degrees, and you know they used that knowledge obviously in teaching. And in university, especially Dunedin, is known for its real scarfy lifestyle and enjoying the good things in life. You know, what was your greatest memory from the university days? It was an exceptionally fun time. Um, a, a lot of memories, a lot of great memories, um, both in terms of what I studied and who I studied with and obviously what we did in our spare time. Uh I did play hockey, I think, for Mamona Hockey Club, and that was in the days pre-artificial um, turf, and it was so muddy and wet and cold. That's a, that's a standout memory. Um, I must admit, I loved escaping up to central Otago um, and staying with friends and skiing. That really sort of fueled my love of skiing in central Otago. Uh, and, you know, look, also I... Besides studying, I had two part-time jobs, um, which I really enjoyed because I think it's important when you study to keep in contact with the real world. At least that's what I sort of tell my kids now. Um, so I actually had a reasonably good quality of life. Um, but yeah, I was really, really fortunate to be able to pursue both for Z and and my commerce degrees, and uh, made some great friends, um, some of whom I'm you know still well in touch with today. So what were those those early jobs, those part-time jobs you were doing? Uh, cafe work, um, bar work, and actually I worked as a teacher for um, PEPSA, which was an Otago University-run physical education program for sedentary adults. Uh, and that actually sort of led me to, I probably worked um, for the next five years, finishing at uni and in my first couple of years actually as a professional in Wellington, um, I taught aerobics part-time um, for Les Mills and another gym in Wellington. Uh, it's, it's sort of coming full circle now where there's such a big focus on getting, you know, sedentary, sedentary adults, you know, active and moving again. So, you know, it's, it's not something new for, for those out there. It's been going on for, for many, many years. So you landed a job as a graduate at Bank of New Zealand straight out of university. You talked earlier around having a leader there that brought those teams of talented people together. What else, what were some of the big learnings in that first sort of real big key job? Yeah, it was it was a really interesting time in financial services in New Zealand. So, of course, um, you know, the 1987 uh, stock market crash followed a period of significant dere deregulation of financial markets in New Zealand. Uh, so I joined the bank in 1988, really in the aftermath of that. And um, the bank was actually split into two, the, the bad bank and the good bank. So the bad bank had all the um, had all the debt that flowed from the stock market crash. And I was part of the good bank or the rebuilding of the new bank. And we had a, um, eventually a new CEO who was a very... Um, customer and market focus so everything we did was really driven from um, customer and market needs and uh, we developed a very strong analytical capability and you know I learned a huge amount about um, uh, you know analyzing customers and market segments and understanding market profitability and product profitability and designing products that meet the needs of those markets and you can imagine in, in a bank that's gone through significant financial losses, um, 
the focus on risk and credit is extremely um, strong. Uh, so I think I learned some really strong disciplines um, that have set me in good stead um, in different roles and in different industries. You know, very rigorous process um, to, in terms of building business cases and making any investment decisions. Um, and again, that, that's been really, those skills have been quite transferable to me, for me. Hmm. And after BNZ, you moved to London uh, and worked at GE Capital. You know, what were kind of the differences in the kind of financial sector between New Zealand and, and London at the time? Yeah. Um, well, it was interesting in the last couple of years for me leaving um, or back in, in, in New Zealand, um, the bank had been acquired by National Australia Bank and uh, the culture and the environment uh, was, whilst it was very market and customer focused, um, was very analytical. We'd spend 90% of our time analysing and 10% of our time doing and very focused on um, systems and processes. Uh, versus working for GE Capital, which was um, a rapidly growing global finance business, I had a very inspirational leader in Jack Walsh, Jack Welsh, who was very focused on employing great people, um, saying this is what we want to achieve and letting them go to it. So, uh, yeah, quite, quite different organisational cultures. And I would say the latter was very, very focused on um, on people and creating an environment or a culture where people want to be and uh, it's it's relatively easy to get things done. So it was my first real taste of experiencing quite markedly different cultures and, uh, and work environment. Hmm. So what filled your desire then to uh, become an advisor and consultant to CEOs and boards in the areas of strategy, organisational development and marketing as part of Paul & Associates? Uh, well, it was a decision that was led to, um, I think, uh, because of several different threads of things going on in my life at that time. So um, when we, when I left BNZ, my last uh, 18 months at BNZ, um, I was involved in quite a significant organisational change project, which was um, supported by external consultants, uh, McKinsey and Co. So I was seconded into that uh, project for around 12 months and it was my first real exposure to high quality consulting and I learned a huge amount again about analysing, developing strategy and making choices um, and the other part was what was going on in my personal life so um, we had, when we moved to London we had a four month old baby, my husband Paul and I um, had had our first child and our move to London uh, was primarily around Paul's um, acceptance to do and to do uh, his um, his masters in finance at London Business School. Uh, so working in London, whilst it was a great experience, it was very much balanced with with family needs. Um, when we came back to New Zealand, um, I was pregnant with our second child, and. Uh, you know, after having had pretty hefty corporate jobs, I said to Paul, you know, no more corporate work for me. I really wanted to work flexibly and have time, um, you know, with the children while they were young and, uh, you know, be a reasonable mother as well and uh, and wife. Um, and so I'd been fit in my 
corporate career to date to have worked with outstanding leaders who were then leading in other organisations in the corporate scene in, in New Zealand. Uh, so um, I had good connections um, as well as I'd been a bit building a bit of a toolkit there to be able to to um, advise back really in the areas of marketing strategy and then that, that really developed into broader business strategy and organisational development over the years. Yeah, so family is really important and, you know, it's great to see that you took that opportunity to spend uh, oh, some time. Oh, extremely important. I mean, I think, um, you know, I don't know many men or women now who are making career decisions without really thinking about how am I going to make this work to optimise um, uh, the lifestyle and well-being of my family. And, you know, it certainly was a major juggle for us. And uh, I certainly couldn't have done what I have been able to do without an incredibly supportive husband who, to be fair, when we were in London and he was supposedly studying full-time, he was really the primary um, uh, primary parent because I was travelling so much with work, even though we were fortunate we had a fantastic South, um, South African nanny. Um, but I always say those days were great because... Paul, you know, learnt to be the, you know, the primary parent, and that really has stood us in good stead um, for later on. Yeah, it's, I'm sure a lot of dads would would be envious of that and having this opportunity to spend a lot more time with their their children. So you worked in some pretty big, you know, with some pretty big names in New Zealand business, uh, including Telecom New Zealand, New Zealand Post, New Zealand Lotteries, and Westpac New Zealand. What was the project you were most proud of and why? Uh, I think um, there were several standout pieces of work, but the one that probably sticks with me, um, and you hear about this sort of a little bit further on too, in terms of the theme around this, is the work that I did with um, the New Zealand Lotteries Commission in advising the CEO on um, a reset of their strategy uh, and then worked with that organisation as an independent consultant um, uh, for the next sort of four years to do the annual refresh. But also, um, you know, it's all very well to have a strategy, but it's got to be dynamic and it's got to change with the changing market environment. And, you know, there's no, no point in having a great strategy unless you can actually implement it. So in terms of actually realigning the organisation and, and its resources to fuel that strategy. So um, I know that, that that was a really, really useful piece of work and it was enormously satisfying to be able to stay with the organisation for a period of time as it implemented that strategy and made a substantial um, difference uh, to the business. And so in 2006, you decided to switch your focus more towards governance. So did you find it a challenge from being in the operations where you're advising and now being in a position of governance? Yes, well, look, um, it was interesting because with working, you know, flexibly doing effectively contract consulting work, um, I was getting exposed to boards and some of that work and it sort of fueled my interest in governance. And at the same time, uh, we were back in Auckland and I was, you know, approached to um, go on to the, um, the foundation. Uh, so this is a diocesan school, is a trustee of the foundation, uh, which is raising funds to future-proof um, the school as an independent girls' school in New Zealand. 
and then appointed to the school board and as chair pretty much straight away in 2006. So, so I was starting to understand the role of governance and, um, you know, it's interesting how these things kind of come together. I had that happening and so I was sort of earning, learning a lot in that space and then I um, had a was approached to do a really interesting piece of work for a Hamilton-based uh, food company called Pro-Life Foods, and, uh, uh, which is, owns the Allison's Pantry um, brand here in New Zealand, um, New Zealand's largest importer of fruit and nuts. And then during my time on the board, actually, um, we acquired uh, the Mother Earth brand back from Cadbury. But um, it's getting a bit ahead of myself. In 2006, I helped them with their marketing strategy and... Uh, then for various reasons, they decided to form their first board and I was appointed um, as an independent director and had a fantastic chair appointed at um, similar time, David Irving, who I had uh, worked with previously in another life. He'd been a, a, a chair uh, in, in the early 2000s. Um, so again, through having a fantastic chair and a great board, learned a huge amount Um with a high growth New Zealand food business. Yeah, and, and so, you know, talking about your uh, sort of challenges there, what, what was the biggest change you had to make in regards to your perspective on business? You know, being in that governance role, what's the biggest change in perspective? Um, well, look, I think there's, there's several things. Obviously, you, you don't have the operational responsibility. Um, so your, your role is quite different. You, you're focused on really the, what I call the four kind of pillars of, of governance. One, you know, is um, you've got to set the strategy. Um, you've got to resource the strategy in terms of um, appointing a leader for the business, so having a great CEO, um, and you've got to be able to resource the strategy. Uh, you've got to be able to monitor the performance of the organisation. Are we delivering what we say we want to achieve? Uh, and then there is um, the conformance or the risk aspects uh, in terms of actually understanding and um, managing through um, challenging times uh, where the business might be facing um, different risks. So so you, you are in a different role. And so you've got to step out of those day-to-day responsibilities and, and, and you've got to work through your CEO and uh, you know, the, f- the importance of that relationship of having a really trusted, um, open, respectful relationship with your CEO is fundamental to the to the um, healthy workings of a board and, and an organisation. Uh, and then the other thing is really, you know, you, you've got to be able to assimilate a lot of knowledge and work out what is really important, what are the big rocks, which is what I like to call them. So what is really going on here? And often it's less is more. So you know what are the what are the two or three big things or big rocks we're dealing with, and really help to focus the board's energy and effort on on those, and be able to ask good questions around that too. What do you think is is fundamentally important at a board level when it comes to ensuring uh, the sustainability and success of a of an organisation? Boards have to be able to ask the big, hard questions. And, you know, as a board member, you know, I remember my chair, John Williamson at hockey, um, saying, you know, I'm on the board, I can go up any any drain pipe 
any, you know, rat hole I like. Um, you need to be able to ask those hard questions. But you also have the ability to um, step back and come back to purpose and understand, you know, why are we doing this? You know, what is the relevance of this? Why are we doing this? Before we get onto the how, and, you know, I've seen it time and time again where organisations are just too busy. They're doing too much stuff and, um, you know, using a huge amount of energy and resource and people getting burnt out and just trying to do too much stuff because they haven't gone back to the fundamentals of purpose and why. Therefore, what are the most important things that we do now? You know, I remember hearing a quote from Steve Jobs to say, you know, as a, an organisation can only ever focus on up to three big priorities at, at one time. And I think the board's got a key role and helping determine what is important and helping um, the CEO and the executive prioritize. You're talking about uh, going from stepping out of the day-to-day to -day to now going back into the day-to-day. -day. So in 2009, you, you ventured into the world of sport administration. So you, you studied PE and then gone into kind of the world of finance and, uh, and, and also consulting. What was it like to step into the shoes of Ramesh Patel, who was the chief executive of Hockey New Zealand, um, who'd held that role for 20 years. Yeah. Um, well, first of all, I would say Ram, Ramesh is just an outstanding um, individual who was enormously patient with me uh, when I joined Hockey New Zealand. Um, and, uh, you know, he's an incredible person. He ended up working as part of my team at Hockey New Zealand for, for two years. So, I had a huge amount to learn from him in terms of how sport worked and how hockey worked. Uh, and yeah, it was probably one of the steepest learning curves of my life, um, to be honest, um, and, but a time which was incredibly rewarding um, and incredibly interesting as well. Yeah, he's, he's definitely well recognised and, and did a lot of work there. So during your time at Hockey New Zealand, you were successful in you know, doubling the revenues and commercializing the assets. So what did you have to identify early on that needed to be changed? Um, well, a couple of things come to mind. I can remember, I think, at my first board meeting, the board saying, God, you know, we're just getting no following or interest, um, no photos of the sport in the paper. Um, you know, it's such a great, great sport. And, um, but we're just not getting the profile. And, you know, I just asked that basic um, basic question, well, well, do we have a photographer? Um, do we, what are our relationships like with the media? Um, so it, it really was um, some quite fundamental things we could do quite quickly to build the, really the level of, of media coverage. And with the aim too, because um, it was still relatively early in terms of um, digital channels. Um, but, you know, we um, we refreshed the website. We set up our channels with, in those days, the main one was actually was just Facebook. Instagram came on through later on um, to, to really build the, the, build the accessibility of the sport to the great content that, that we had. Um, the, the other key thing with a sport, with a healthy sporting system, particularly if you're looking to commercialise, um, is that you've got to have your competition structure in place. You've got to have your assets that you can actually um, sell. Um, 
So we did quite a bit of work on that and um, during my time brought on some fantastic um, sponsors who are still with hockey today. It's really pleasing to see. Uh, and then the other major thing we did with hockey too in my time was we set up the Hockey Foundation um, again to really garner the, the incredible support around the sport, particularly from a philanthropic perspective. That's such an important part, that alumni and the philanthropic part. And, you know, we've obviously seen some incredible backers there in, in hockey over the last couple of years that have come through as well, which uh, is fantastic to see, you know, like working in Australian sport over the last five years, you know, it, watching here how difficult it is to get uh, the backing. But you, you see the Gina Reinhardt's who pump money into swimming and volleyball and rowing. So it's great to see some... Uh, some of those people doing the same thing in New Zealand for not just the big sports like rugby, but, you know, the sports like hockey that are kind of really growing and developing. So we've seen that a huge amount of growth the last two decades in both the men's and women's national teams consistently performing on an international stage. Is that down to growing a larger base of participants or a strong grassroots culture, the elite domestic competition or focusing on coach development or is it something else? Um, look, I think it's a combination of things, Craig. I mean, look, a healthy sporting system, I mean, at its heart, it's got to have great people and high quality people who who uh, work to support the sport, and that would be through the volunteers. So with hockey, I think there's around 30 hockey associations around the country who um, effectively deliver the game, and there's tremendous people and support in, in schools in New Zealand. But in terms of an NSO, um, you know, in terms of, the, I guess, the the other building blocks that, this, that the NSO can work to um, strengthen is around the um, pathways. So... Uh, pathways for coaches, pathways for athletes. And a lot of that is actually held together by the competition um, structure. Uh, and, you know, we've done a lot of work over the years with developing the domestic competition structure for hockey and then, of course, the international competition structure. And again, those are kind of fundamental tenets. You've got to have your competition structure and your calendar sorted um, to be able to bring in particularly that sort of commercial support. Um, you've got to have something to sell to the broadcasters. Um, and, you know, when I started at hockey and even to some degree in netball, we were setting our calendar too late and you've got, your lead time's too short. You, you can't actually realistically expect to bring in um, commercial support without um, building it into the plans of the organisations who are supporting you and that they've actually made a considered decision to invest in your sport for certain types of return, but you've got to get into their planning and their budget cycle. So to have that lead time is, is really important. So, so talking about broadcast deals, you know, you established a big deal with a long-term deal with Sky Sports. What effect did that have and how important was it to hockey? Yeah. Um, uh, well, actually, the, the deal with Sky, the longer-term deal with Sky happened after um, after my time and um, they're obviously, obviously working uh, with um, uh, Spark Sport Note now too, or that's really with the, the FIH assets. Um, but it's, I mean, what it, what it does, it generates a reliable income stream um, in, in particular um, with the athletes now who, you know, hockey's in a very challenging environment because um, 
basically in every other leading country in the world, um, the sport is professional. The athletes are paid and can train as professionals. We're in New Zealand. We've been in a semi-professional environment. Um, and yet the sacrifices that the athletes make is so considerable. Um, so to be able to have sustainable revenue streams um, that you can actually start to share with athletes, you start to, you know, be able to actually build the sustainability of the sport. Um, but in, in my time, we we did um, we certainly started to work with um, with Sky and. Uh, when we had major events like when we hosted the 2011 Champions Trophy and uh, then we bid for and uh, didn't get the Women's Hockey World Cup but I think got the World League final. To have those major events locked in, um, then you can actually um, put the commercial um, contracts in around them. It's all about building those assets. Your contribution to the sport of hockey was you know, widely acknowledged with being awarded the CK Doig Award for Excellence in Leadership in Sport in New Zealand, and then the International Hockey Federation's President's Award for International Service to Hockey. What uh, what do you think are your core leadership beliefs and characteristics that have enabled you to be an excess, uh, successful sports leader? Look, you know, I think it really comes down to to two things. One, you've you've got to have quality people around you, and whether they're part of your direct team whether they're on your board. Um, you know, I talked earlier about um, about your uh, chairman. I had three outstanding people as my chair uh, during my time at hockey. Um, so you need to, as a CEO, you need to feel that support. You need to get the honest messages. So, you know, you need to hear it straight if um, the board has got a different view from yours. Um, but those trusted relationships with key people um, a number one uh, and and when you're working in a sport too you've got complex relationships with stakeholders so you've got to be able to build a really a collaborative team um, from you know across the sport and whether it's within the sport and within the partners so those relationships those trusted relationships are absolutely key um, the second thing is that you need to have a plan and you need to have, be able to sell your vision and build support for the vision of, of where you want to take the sport and then be able to have that quite simply translatable into a strategy um, uh, in terms of how you're going to execute that plan. Yeah, well, you executed very, very well there um, with some great outcomes with New Zealand hockey. You then shifted to netball and it's... It's a big deal in New Zealand and in New Zealand society, especially, and it has a lot of public and media scrutiny. Uh, scrutiny. You rode some pretty big highs and lows during your reign at Nepal, New Zealand. You know, what was it like to be leading New Zealand's largest female participation sport that was in the limelight? Oh, well, look, firstly, it was an incredible privilege. And, you know, you just have to continue to remind yourself as a, as a CEO that you are a guardian or a to steward with a stewardship role for a certain period of time it's been there for a long time before you and it will be there for a long time after you um so it's, it's a real privilege and again um you know like hockey in new zealand there are some fantastic people who work in netball and really the strength of netball lies in its netball centers i think there's currently around 80 um around the country and again they're the ones who deliver 
um, netball day in, day out, week after week. And so, you know, going back to, I guess, my commercial experience, um, you know, and, and really my kind of, I guess, my professional gene is really based around marketing and customers. You really, really need to understand um, what um, what your players or your participants need in your sport, what, what you actually need to do um, to thrive. And I think if you just continue to um, focus on um, on that first and foremost, and everything else um, follows. So many people, many CEOs sit down in their new office and, and find out there were a few things that weren't mentioned during the interview process. Has there been any big surprises when you sat down in the office and had a few weeks under your belt that sort of come to the fore and you went, oh, I wish I knew that before I got the role? I think what um, with netball, what's what's interesting is you know as you said, it's you know largest participation sport in New Zealand and similar, if not bigger than than rugby, but yet probably about ten percent of the resources, um, both in terms of financially and people. So netball is incredibly efficient, um, but incredibly lean, and I hadn't really fully appreciated that. I'd certainly experienced that in hockey but I just expect relatively that it would be better resourced. I think the other thing too, and it comes down to, you know, what what helps sport be sustainable in New Zealand, whatever the code, um, in terms of having a sustainable sporting system, you really need to have um, your pathways for athlete and coach development. And probably they weren't as well developed as I expected, you know, given the success, you know, the Silver Ferns had had and the profile the sport had. Um, and similarly, there was a lot of work to do in the in the competition structure, both um, domestically um, and internationally. Um, and then probably the, the other big surprise was, again, you know, we used to look at, with envy from hockey and, and look at the ANZ Championship um, in terms of having that broadcast competition week in, week out, week out with, you know, professional contracts in place with the athletes. But you know, the, the Trans-Tasman Championship had <coughs> major sustainability challenges. Mm. And, you know, managing the pressure of the public, the media and board demands can be can be really high, especially around Commonwealth Games or World Championship periods. So how did you manage that pressure and kind of turn it into a positive for you? Yeah. Um, well, you know, first of all, you know, as CEO, you're not, you're not, you're not walking alone. Sometimes it might feel lonely, but you're not walking alone. Uh, and, you know, I had an incredibly supportive board and um, chairman. And, you know, I um, developed a, a really capable and hardworking and committed um, leadership team. So um, being able to walk through these things as a team was, um, you know, with a huge amount of passion and positive energy from those around you um, really helps. Um, there, there is no doubt that when you're leading a CEO, leading a um, national sporting organisation, it, it will take as much out of you as you can give. You know, you could work 24-7 and the job is never done. Uh, and, um, you know, I must admit my, my work hours were um, sometimes out of hand in those days, but I was always very focused on on discipline um, around my exercise, um, probably not so good on the sleep front. Uh, and, um, you know, as I said, I was really, really, and have been really fortunate. I still maintain the most important decision you make in your life is um, 
who you um, choose your partner to be. And, uh, you know, my husband, Paul, has been incredible. And, in fact, during those years he was, again, he was probably pretty much the main parent um, to our three children um, during the eight years as I was working as an NSO CEO. Yeah, because those CEO roles at National Sports, you know, they are it is a difficult blend between being a job and being a lifestyle as well and you know it can be very very challenging so it's good to see you know having those relationships and having those people there the support team around you is so invaluable and you know you decided to leave netball new zealand after three years to spend more time with your family and establish yourself in governance roles you know for you now you've switched into kind of the sport governance roles uh, and still, you know, working in some of the other areas as well. W- what are the main differences that you've found working in governance from a company versus a government entity such as Sport New Zealand or High Performance Sport New Zealand? Um, well, look, there's there's lots of um, similarities. Like fundamentally, um, your role as a director, whether it's for a commercial entity or a, a, a government entity or a not-for-profit entity you've got you know a similar role um similar governance responsibilities i mean what's different is the ownership structure so you know commercially you will have shareholder or shareholders who will you know have certain expectations around the performance of the company um with a national sporting organization um well, in New Zealand, typically incorporated societies. So the owners of the sport are the are the, the members. Um, so you have, again, a different sort of set of responsibilities because they will be seeking certain things from the organisation, you know, and similarly with, with the government. Um, so, you know, with Sport New Zealand and High Performance Sport New Zealand, um, uh, we have got a fantastic minister who is very clear... Um, through um, through the process and through the um, through the planning and the statement of performance expectations that is um, that is agreed, uh, and then we look back to in particular Sport and Recreation Act, uh, which was written I think around two thousand and two, uh, which is um, which was written very well I might say um, now seventeen years ago I think it's been updated once in that time which gives us real clarity in terms of what is the purpose and the role of the organisation. And that really helps guide the board in terms of um, the direction we then provide management um, with regard to um, strategy in particular. Yeah, and you're involved in both, you know, with Sport New Zealand, more from the participation side, then high performance Sport New Zealand from the performance side. How, how important do you think that is to be connected in both sides because you know, quite often we'll see the high performance arm in a national sport organization kind of sit off to the side a little bit and kind of run their own little business and participation kind of does their own thing how important is it to keep them both together and ensure that um, they support each other um look I, I think it's really important coming back to what you know um what are the key drivers of a of a healthy, sustainable um, sporting system and within a sport? It's again, it's the pathways and it's the connection between participation through performance to elite. Um, so it's the development opportunities and the development structures there for the athletes, uh, and similarly for the coaches. Um, 
so ha having that connection is 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 really important um i believe and, and what do you think will be the greatest fundamental shift for sporting organizations over the next 30 to 50 years I think for me, it's coming back to um, the changing uh, needs of the market of our participants. Um, so in New Zealand, we've got a phenomenally um, quite rapidly changing um, mix of um, from a culture and eth um, ethnicity perspective. Uh, we've got um, a whole lot of extra, a whole lot of other demands or opportunities for how people spend their spare time. So sports need to continue to be very close to um, the changing needs of the participants um, and continue to um, evolve not just what they offer in terms of the content of their programs and competitions, but how they engage and connect with their participants. Um, so yeah, so it's a tough, it's a, it, you know, it's a tough challenge. Um, but that continued relevance is really important going forward. Yeah, look back. I think back to my grandparents in in their time. They had you know only a few options, and so it was quite easy for them to make a choice. Whereas nowadays, there are so many options for people from both an activity point of view, but also an entertainment point of view, um, to keep them occupied. You know, when they're young or even young adults. So it's, it will be a big challenge. Well, that's right. And, you know, look, what we see in the research, um, you know, from um, Sport New Zealand um, is that there are key junctures where um, behaviour changes. Um, and one thing that we're really focused on um, at the moment is how we can address that teenage drop-off where kids move out of the controlled environment to the uncontrolled environment and can make choices themselves and what they're actually seeking um, in terms of their sport and recreation um, environment um, so that we can keep kids physically active. You know, and what you learn early on, you know, uh, how that can best stay with you throughout your life. Yeah, so you have you have a very diverse and busy portfolio. So how do you free your mind and ensure that um, you can think cl with clarity and purpose? Well, look, you know, when I prepare for a board meeting, you know, you might get the odd couple of hundred pages to read. And I like to give myself a wee challenge before I start reading board papers and again come back to what are the what are the three big rocks? What are the most important things we're dealing with from an organisational perspective? Um, and that will hope, help me as I prepare, um, uh, you know, for my board meetings and other interactions. Um, what what really we should be should we be focusing on in terms of our time and effort and energy? So I think understanding your priorities is is first and foremost. Um, on, on the personal front, um, I really enjoy a lot of yoga these days and, uh, you know, that sort of flows through in terms of meditation. I meditate probably a couple of times a day, be it for short periods. Uh, and again, that just helps me to kind of focus again on, on what, what is really important in my life. Um, I'm playing interclub tennis, so I've been kind of slightly obsessed with... Um, uh, the the um, grading system and um, and uh, you know how I can sort of 
lift my performance, be it not high performance, but how I can improve my my tennis. And then, yeah, just spending a lot of time with, um, really with Paul, my husband, we we like to do hiking together. Yeah, brilliant. Can the, the, great out, thing. the great outdoors and nature, it's uh, pretty hard to do that here in Australia at the moment with most of our our big yeah. national parks under fire, unfortunately. Um, as I look out the window with a fair bit of smoke haze still out there today. Um, we all know smart people have great answers, but the most successful people ask great questions. So when was the last time you did something for the first time? I've, I've um, had a couple of really interesting experiences um, lately. So um, went to the Australian Open final for the first time, finals um, last weekend, which was just an exceptional event. Um, just, you know, the Olympic Park at Melbourne is just an amazing facility and the foresight there with the development of the sporting infrastructure um, and the investment that the Victorian government makes to maintain that. Um, those facilities is just just amazing and we we certainly need to take that long-term view here in New Zealand so that was a first anyway and then um, Paul and I we recently walked we did a hike a couple of weeks ago um, in behind up onto the Crown Range behind Arrowtown so it was a day hike it was about 20k uh, 1500 vertical meters up about 750 down and what I learned was why the Crown Range is called the Crown Range, because we climbed Crown Peak, which has got a coronet on the top of it. Um, so that was, a, that was interesting for me. Um, and then this year we have um, something we've been meaning to do for a while, but um, we're both about to become students again, and we have enrolled to do a... Um, very much a beginner's course in Tereo at um, AUT here in Auckland. So I just a certificate in Tereo. So that's going to be something new for me this year. Beautiful. And, and I think that's, you know, I, I love how New Zealand has really embracing uh, Tereo and ensuring that the culture comes back to the fore. So really, really, really proud of New Zealand for doing that. What's the one question that you would love to solve? I think I probably think about this in the context of um, you know my role and privilege um, working on the board of Sport New Zealand and having a system view and having a having an understanding of the challenges we have with decline in physical activity um, and our obesity epidemic here in New Zealand. But I think if every person in New Zealand knew their own personal formula of you know. It, inputs and outputs, so inputs being nutrition, what you eat, and outputs being um, how you expend your energy um, through whatever form of physical activity, whatever form of brain gym. Uh, but if every person could simply understand um, and their, their own personal input and output formula uh, and um, what they have, have the toolkit, have the resources, have the discipline, um, uh, to, to follow that, um, you know, I think we could have a healthier, um, healthier nation. Yeah, and I'm just playing with my personal performance formula at the moment and uh, just trying some new things with nutrition around, can I look at more of a diet that looks at 
the only time I eat red meat is on a social aspect. So I don't have to worry about what I eat when I go out with people, but the rest of the time, can I base it on plants and also fish? So that's my new challenge around my personal it's, formula. Yeah, well, it's really interesting. In fact, I'll copy it for you. I read this great article actually over the weekend. I've had it sort of sitting there in the University of Auckland alumni magazine, which somehow our household gets, so none of us went to the University of Auckland. And it's on the future of food. And, you know, just talking about the food trends and, um, you know, growth and veganism, vegetarianism, um, but how from a sustainability perspective in terms of the impact on farming, how things can change uh, if we go more plant and grain-based as well. So it's kind of, it, it is all interconnected. Um, but, um, yeah, we certainly eat a lot less meat, but we kind of go for quality, not quantity. So, you know, I'll have a steak, but I'll have a small 70-gram perfect fillet. <laughs> I'm with you, you know, on that one. I might go for the, you know, we used to eat much bigger cuts of meat, right? The way I see it is the only diet that actually has real foolproof research and evidence is that that's been around for tens of thousands of years where they would eat yeah. plant-based. They would only eat red meat if they could catch it. So they had to be fast yeah. enough to catch it. So they need the energy yeah. first. And if yeah. they lived near the ocean, then they would have some seafood. So yeah, <laughs> I like that yeah. approach. Yeah. Well, a friend of mine's an orthopedic surgeon who does a lot of knees. And he said, you get so many obese people in there to operate on. And the reason their knees are stuffed is because they're overweight. And um, they go, oh, look, I've been really good. I've been going to the gym and walking. And, but then he looks at what they're eating, right? That you can have, you know, you can have a greater impact actually on your weight more quickly by getting your right your diet right. Um, you know, and of course, you know, exercise is important for a whole lot of other reasons too. But um, you know, that's why I think we need to be working much harder to have inter programs of intervention in New Zealand um, rather than sort of being the ambulance at the bottom of the cliff in terms of the health system for you how would you describe an extraordinary life it's one where you have got real clarity in your purpose and um you know i think as as you age you do think about this more and more and you know if i think about um what i can do now um is you know i can help make other people feel good um, and I can do that by encouraging them or helping pick them up when they're down or helping to give them direction or helping to connect them with somebody who might be able to help them on a certain path. So, um, you know, I think an extraordinary life for me now looks quite different from what, what I might have thought 30 years ago. Um, but, yeah, that's that's what I've been thinking about. Power of giving giving to other people yeah and and i and i even think about it because i think about how can i help most in my board roles and you know where do i make a difference and i think that because i've been in the ceo shoes i often know the 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 juggle and the pressure of um you know conflicting priorities and shortage of resource etc and i think well how can i help support that ceo to be successful in terms of, um, you know, encouragement, you know, a bit of nurturing, um, uh, you know, if they've had a tough day, just a, you know, supportive text, you know, 
let that one let that one go. There's a new day tomorrow. Um, that's when I used to have a tough day at the office, so to speak. And if I if I got a bit beaten up or made a wrong decision or you know felt that I could have done better, you know, I used to wake up in the early hours thinking, you know, what did I learn from that? You know, what did I learn from that? And um, and that helped me get through those tough times. Um, and so, yeah, I just feel like if I can support my CEOs or management teams to build their resilience and confidence, um, uh, you know, through through the good and the bad, then, you know, I would have helped make a difference to that organisation and those people. And Hilary, you've made a lot of, a huge difference to a lot of people and we've really enjoyed the insights and experience you've shared with us today. So how can people learn more about what you do and what would be the best way they can connect with you? Uh, look, probably just through my LinkedIn profile. Um, it, I'm pretty easy to find on LinkedIn. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm very happy for people to um, connect with me or yeah, if they've got any questions or any thoughts, that would be great. Beautiful. It's, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today, Hilary. I've you know, the insights of having that, the background of your, your mum being a PE teacher and how that has kind of helped shaped your life uh, going through to finance where you, you found, you enjoyed the economic side of things and the strategy and coming out of that and consulting back and really helping shape the leadership and the strategy of organizations and boards. The, the mark you left in both hockey and netball is quite impressive and I've been able to watch it from afar and see how well uh, you did in those roles and, and what sort of the outcomes and to see that both of those sports really thriving in New Zealand. You know, when I was younger, they were real kind of grassroots sports and, and now they're very professional and they're in the limelight and people know who the, all the, the netball players are, they know who the hockey players are and they're getting some really good uh, airtime on TV as well, which is fantastic. Um, to now you now giving back in those governance roles and making a, a positive uh, effect or having a positive effect on, on CEOs and other people on the boards to help them shape it so that they can have more clarity, they can develop a greater purpose in what they're doing and ensure that they develop some great strategies and get some good outcomes for the future uh, of sport in New Zealand. Um, so and, and also into your commercial role. So thank you very much for your time today. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you. Oh, you're very welcome, Craig. Thank you for the opportunity to talk quite often. Um, you get probably more out of it than you think, and I've really enjoyed the opportunity to um, reflect on my journey. So thank you. On this week's Active CEO Performance Tip, we're talking about dedicated time to CEO exercise. Why should a CEO dedicate time in their busy schedule to incorporate exercise into their daily routine? A CEO with low energy poses a big problem for a company as they create a stress environment each day. Creativeness, decision-making and attention suffer as a consequence. Family relationships and social life will be impaired as they will take longer to complete tasks and will have less energy than a fit CEO to use after work has finished for the day. For CEOs and leaders to maintain high levels of integrity, 
think strategically about the future, have clarity when making decisions, be energetic and have the confidence to lead a high performing team, they need to be healthy. This means they need to be attentive to regular exercise, fueling their body with the right food, freeing their mind and recovering with purpose. As a great Jim Rowan would say, take care of your body. It's the one place you have to live. Thank you for listening to a wonderful conversation with Hilary Paul on episode 78 of the Active CEO podcast. Being a CEO leader requires a lot of passion, dedication, hard work, and focus on other people. Burnout, stress, overwhelm, and mistakes occur when you don't effectively plan your energy and recovery. Manage the workload of your team and focus your full attention on other people while neglecting your own performance. To ensure that you perform optimally and deliver the best possible experience for your customers, clients, suppliers, stakeholders, board members, and team of people, it is crucial that you develop the skills, routines, and habits required to be a high-performing leader. Active CEO coaching helps transform influencers to being high-performing leaders. To learn more about Active CEO coaching and corporate programs, then please contact me at craig at nrg2perform.com or click on the contact page of www.nrg2perform.com website. This is the Active CEO podcast where the ordinary don't belong. Join the active CEO movement by visiting www.nrgtoperform.com. That's nrg2perform.com. Share this podcast on LinkedIn and be sure to tag in NRG to Perform. Leave a review on iTunes. Drop us a line with your feedback and questions and connect with us on the NRG to Perform Facebook and Instagram pages. Be sure to check out the next Active CEO podcast where the ordinary don't belong.